Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. Whenever you're correcting a student, you're also grading them. The problem is that when you do that, Students with bad grades, they will start to be disgusted of corrections. They will hate being corrected. And if you want to kill the educational potential of someone, make them hate correction. If you really want to make someone disgusted with learning, make them hate corrections. And if you want to make a student love learning, make them love corrections. Now, what makes you love corrections? Video games. I'm Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona, and this episode is an interview made in Kaplankaya with the brain specialist Idris Aberkan, a neuroscientist known for his work on personal development and his book Free Up Your Mind. In this episode, we're going to talk about education and what is missing in the actual way of teaching for Idris. We'll also discuss about video games, how good they are for Idris, yes, you heard right, and artificial intelligence. How useful would be a chip in our brain? So, let's start with education. What's wrong today? Well, we've entered the, the 21st century with an education of the 19th. That's the, the big problem there. Uh, the 19th century education was made for the industry. We, the point was that if you didn't educate your people, you would be deindustrialized. You would be... Uh, You would, you would become what we would call a third world country later on. So Japan, for example, has a, a very violent educational system. They have a, you know, a lot of suicide rate and they, they, they've got a lot of pressure on their, on their kids. And um, one of the reasons of this uh, culture, this dominant culture in their educational system is that they industrialize really fast. Japan was facing the, um, the colonization of China. And they told themselves, look, this is, we're next. Right? If we don't industrialize really fast, this is what's going to happen to us. So in the Meiji era, they, they started to industrialize really fast and their education followed. And the education we have was made for the industrialization. It comes from that. You know, it's compulsory mandatory education was invented by industrialized countries. And it was good. It was good. It was an immense progress at the time. But the problem now is that we, we haven't adapted to the new needs of the 21st century, and among them, of course, the importance of fulfilling children. I mean, fulfillment is not even considered an, uh, an objective in most educational systems. So what exactly do you reproach with uh, education today? That it doesn't, it doesn't focus on fulfillment. It focuses on, on uh, conformity. Like, you have to make... The point is that most educational systems, with some exceptions, the Finnish one, the Swiss one, the uh, Singaporean one, most educational systems f uh, work as a supply chain. They are here to supply. So they're here to supply people who can work in the streets, who can be either engineers or technicians or whatever. But they work as a supply chain. And uh, the idea that they could focus on, on making individuals self-reliant, fulfilled, learn throughout all their life, which of course we know is needed now, so education should, should focus on making pupils able to learn during all their life, and not only in formal education. Uh, there's a famous... Uh, American entrepreneur, I forgot his name, but he said, formal education will make you a living, uh, self-education will make you a fortune. And uh, he's quite right. So those are all the defects. The, the, the point is that he didn't adapt, really. Uh, since it was 
administered, sometimes politicized as well. You know, in the French case, for example, whenever you want to reform the educational system, people don't ask whether the, the, the reform will work. They don't ask, you know, is this new technique or whatever, will it work? Did we do tests? Did we see that students learn how to read faster? No, they just ask whether it's left-wing or right-wing. And, and it, it, that's in the French case, but it's also in the uh, Japanese case most of the time. Whenever you want... Uh, an educational reform, it becomes politicized. And you can't do anything because they will ask first whether it's right-wing or left-wing. And the, the Finns, for example, they said, the reason we have such a good educational system is that we absolutely refuse politicizing it. When we want to, to reform some educational practice, we just try it. And if it fails, we admit it fails. And even if it looked left-wing and we're left-wing and it failed, we admit it failed because it's not politicized. Do you feel like in the UK and the US, uh, the approach is a bit more focused on the child and on the development of uh, some uh, soft skills? Uh, that's more in higher education because uh, the, I mean, the American tradition for higher education is that the client is king, right? So when you, you enroll in the university, you're supposed to be treated well. Uh, there, there are a few exceptions, of course, and the, the tuition costs have been uh, growing exponentially. You remember in, in the 50s, You could own a house, a car, and send your kids to college uh, with only one salary, right? And uh, of course, it's not the case anymore. In the 50s, even adjusted with inflation, right, I think the tuition cost for Harvard must have been $500, which was still a lot, right? Maybe $300 it, uh, in the 50s was still a lot, but nothing compared to uh, the $40,000 that we pay today. So that's the consequence in the American system is that When the education is private, there is some kind of the client is king. But again, some kind. I wouldn't call it the best educational system at all. Uh, the, fin the Finnish system, the Icelandic system, the Singaporean systems, and the Swiss systems are am among the best, for sure. And why? What do they bring more? So first, because they're not politicized. Second, you have to know that in the Swiss case, there's not even a ministry. So it, it's so little politicized that there's no ministry of education in Switzerland. They, they consider it's not of ministerial level. The cantons have the prerogative of coming up with... Because, you know, in the French case, if we really take that case, the education was also made with the objective of unifying the colonial empire. We forget that, but Jules Ferry, who created mandatory education in France, he's the, known by all the French as uh, the minister who created the, the educational mandates in France, and it's supposed to be a heroic uh, endeavor. Uh, but Jules Ferry was also the minister of colonies before. And uh, the idea that you should have a top-down program with, with an administration, in, in the French case, uh, was because France had so many colonies. So you needed to have people saying, uh, our ancestors, the Gauls, in Senegal and in, in uh, Indochina and uh, in uh, Guyana and, and the like. And you also needed uh, to have people speak the same language because you had Breton and Corse and uh, Aquitaine. Pretty much you had, you know, people didn't speak French. And uh, a lot of countries have centralized in the, in the same way. If you take the modern uh, Turkish state, for example, in the, the time of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, uh, there were a lot of influences of the French system and the German system as well. Because the point was that education was an act of power. It was sovereign. The country would become more powerful through education, which is true, which is good, but it's not enough. Right? It can't be the only objective. So when you had educational mandates, especially with countries that uh, passed them quite late, uh, and again the case of Japan or whatever, uh, you would see that focusing on having a top-down administration because it was an act of power, you had to centralize authority. And again, the education in Japan was here to make sure that Japan would remain centralized forever, because Japan had just unified. It had just centralized its power. In, in the Meiji era, it was the time just 50 years before 
any local prince could challenge the emperor. Japan was not at all centralized. So people who see education as a means of centralization, you know, you can't have everything, right? You, there's no free lunch. If you want to make sure that one of the objectives of your education is centralization, there's no way you can have the best educational system in the world. Sometimes you have to, the Chinese system, the Japanese system. You consider it's politically impossible to do any other way, but I mean, kids don't care about centralization. So at some point, your system won't be as good for them as it could be. So what could be added to the system or even what could be radically changed to in make the, it like the best place ever for the In the ideal world? system, if you really have no political objectives with your education, but I know it's not possible. I'm completely aware that it's not possible and that it would be very dangerous. But in the ideal world, you would need a lot of autonomy for teachers. Like, I, I really mean a lot. Not programs, not hard programs. And you would need a lot of autonomy for um, principals as well, heads of schools. They should be able to hire their teachers. Now, I know in France, it's completely impossible to think about that, that, that principals, that heads of schools could hire their teachers, just like an entrepreneur could hire their um, employees, right? But don't you think the parents would have too much power on the teacher? No, of course, then you have the head of school, you would need like uh, a balance for sure, but you know, Ultimately, the parents, uh, they're supposed to be the ones satisfied with the education of their children or not. And of course, the pupils should be the ones satisfied as well, right? They should not hate school and this and that. So, so far, I mean, it's completely unbalanced. So I, I don't call for another unbalance in the other direction. In Kaplankaya, Idris Aberkan made a speech appreciated by some harvesters. Yeah, Idris is always, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. Um, he's, you know, he's a very smart guy, he's very funny, uh, he's also had, you know, a way to see things where you're like, oh, of course, you know, that's obvious, but the, you know, the way he comes up with it is, uh, is so clear, um, and at the same time a little bit alternative compared to the mainstream. Um, and, he, I mean, he's a guy who does a lot of research, he's, he goes very much in depth in his subject, and that's something that I love about it. Idris spoke in Kaplankaya during harvest about the two things you needed to absorb knowledge, time and attention. But if you can force pupils to give their time, attention is way more difficult to force. I asked Idris how to stimulate the pupil's brain. But it's completely unbalanced in the sense, for example, when I was a lecturer at Ecole Centrale, so a school of engineering, quite prestigious, my pupils really loved me. I mean, but I was a non-civil servant, right? I was a vacataire, I was just a, like a lecturer. I came, gave my lectures and left. They really loved me, but it had zero impact on my career. Zero. What would have had an impact on my career would have been to be more friendly with uh, some of my colleagues who were hated by their students because they didn't care. In fact, you know, in, in France, when you're talking at university level, uh, your courses are called a charge, charge d'éducation, charge d'enseignement, a charge, a load. It's like a punishment. You're supposed to just do research. So teaching is like a punishment. You have to do it, but you don't want to do it. And, and it shows. When I saw so many colleagues teaching, and I was like, but how could you make it so boring? And especially those fields that are not supposed, engineering is not supposed to be boring, it's great. I mean, you're talking about bridges and, and, and rockets and, bridge and, the, and the Eiffel Tower, whatever. But yeah, so that's when, what happens when you don't answer to your pupils. 
Let's talk about the brain, because uh, I think one part that you should uh, stimulate to yeah. uh, make a kid uh, want to be smarter, how would you stimulate the brain of a child? As I explained in my talk today, uh, one of the most basic principles of you know, behavior from, from the neuroscientific perspective is that your brain is teaching you to repeat what you like. It's that simple. Okay, the brain is complicated, but it has some basic working mechanisms. And one of the most basic working mechanisms of the brain is that something that gives you pleasure, your brain is teaching you to do it again. Which is the problem of addiction, which is the problem of drugs and video games and the like, but it's also the point of, you know, liking something. You like something, your brain will make you want to do it again. So it's all about choosing a passion, for example. And uh, we know today, I mean, we're going to be 10 billion on planet Earth, so competition has to be different. Regular competition. And back in the days, you had the best grades, and uh, you were competitive, and you, you had a job. But now, you have to be in competition against 10 billion people. There's no way you can be competitive by just uh, practicing a chore, you know, by doing something because it's mandatory, but with no motivation. Liking what you do is not an option anymore. So 30 years ago, you told people, choose a job that you like, and they were like, you're too romantic, this is too idealized. But actually, today, it's not an option anymore, because uh, you really can't succeed with all that competition if you don't like it. There's no way you can succeed if you don't like it. So our education should focus on, on you know, being some kind of speed dating between students and what they like. And by what they like, I mean what they're ready to work 70 hours a week because they like it so much that it's almost their free time, right? It's almost holidays. My point is that in the 2020s and soon the 2030s, it will have to be the rule because you've got 10, 10 billion people on Earth. You can't be competitive if you're suffering. There's no way. There's, you're going to fi always find someone who's suffering more than you. And uh, this guy is going to be ready to suffer more than you, to even take drugs. You see that in China already. People are taking amphetamines to, to do their job. So th there's no way you can keep using suffering as a measure of productivity. And to me, this is the most problematic aspect of education right now. When uh, someone, I don't remember who, said that everything has to be hard before it becomes easy, do you agree with that? It depends what you call hard, because, you know, it could be hard and you could not even notice. Some video games are super hard, but people keep playing them because they twist it, they hypnotize you in a way that you don't even realize you're making an effort. So in the way I explained in my talk today, if you want somebody to lose weight, you could make them run around the stadium. This is hard and stupid, right? This is going to work. They're going to lose calories and they're going to lose weight at some point, but they won't do it. You will need to force them. You will need to tell them, look, wake up at four and do 10 stadium runs. Otherwise, you teach them football and uh, you interest them in football, not only teach them football, you make sure that they like football and they're gonna play for hours and they're gonna lose more weight and they're not gonna suffer. It's still gonna be hard. They're gonna sweat just as much. So if you measure the sweat, it's gonna be the same. But what you have to measure, it's not really about being hard or not. It's about being voluntary, right? Um, psychologist Ericsson, he said, you measure an expert by him having deliberate practice. Deliberate. So you take Usain Bolt, for example. Usain Bolt is really fascinating because at some point, he didn't even have a coach to wake him up. So he would wake up at four by himself because he really freaking loved it. And you've got those, those uh, famous pictures where you see him beating everybody and he's laughing. He's laughing because Usain Bolt, of course, is extremely rich. But if you asked him in this period of his life what he would want to do, he said, like, I just freaking love running. 
Uh, you could offer me holidays in Dubai with a jet ski and, and scuba diving, and I would still prefer running. I really am into that. So it's hard, of course it's hard. But he go, even goes harder than anybody else. He sweats just as much, but for him it's fun. So we have to be careful what we call hard, you know. We, we, we should stop confusing effort and pain. Effort we have to make, but pain is absolutely not necessary. The problem is that people confuse effort and pain. And, and regarding education, I'm going to give you another perspective here. People confuse grades and corrections. They're not the same thing. If you want to learn anything, you need correction, for sure. It's impossible to learn anything without being corrected. Just physically, it's impossible. The brain needs it. The brain needs behavior adjustment. So it needs to know what is right and what is wrong. When you learn how to walk, for example, you've got corrections. Right? You fall, you learn it's wrong. Then you understand how not to fall, how to avoid falling. And this is correction. So if you want to learn anything, sculpting, painting, programming, flying a plane, driving, we need corrections. Now, the good news is that the more corrections, the more we learn. That's what's really great about the brain is that if you find a way to be corrected a lot, and I really mean a lot, you're going to learn super fast. That's why pilots, they learn with a simulator, right? Because the simulator is going to correct you so much. If you had an exam, for example, you have an exam with 20 questions. So you answer questions one, no correction. Question two, no correction. Question three, no correction. Then you do all the 20 questions and you give your exam sheet. And two weeks later, completely out of context, you completely forgot what you wrote you've got one correction event. Now, what we need is high-frequency correction. We need students to be corrected a lot. Problem is, if you have a centralized administration, corrections are one thing, but what you need is different. They're grades. You need grades. Now, grades are administrative. They're performance indicators. Grades are fiduciary, actually. If you want to, to, to use the right term, they are fiduciary. Meaning that grades are here to tell you that your surgeon has the right level. You need grades for a surgeon, you need grades for a pilot, you need grades for so many jobs that involve trust. Grades means you can trust the person. But between learning and trust, you've got a huge gap. I mean, you could be learning sculpture without anybody needing to trust you. Right? You could be learning English without anybody needing to, to trust you. So the problem is that when you bureaucratize education, all corrections are graded. Because you don't have time, because your, your higher up, your administration is asking you to grade. And you don't have time to give non-graded corrections. What would be the point? Right? It's, it's long to correct people. It takes a lot of effort when you're a teacher. So whenever you're correcting a student, you're also grading them. The problem is that when you do that, students with bad grades, they will start to be disgusted of corrections. They will hate being corrected. And if you want to kill the educational potential of someone, make them hate correction. If you really want to make someone disgusted with learning, make them hate corrections. And if you want to make a student love learning, make them love corrections. Now, what makes you love corrections? Video games. Video games, they make you, they, you fail, you lose a life, you fail, the boss kills you in the video game, but you still do it again. A brain specialist promoting games and playful learning is not new, but video games? Here is another surprise that Iris has in store for us. He himself is a gamer. I asked him if despite all the criticism about potential addictions, he still recommended video games. Education should prepare kids to society. Video games are a part of society, so you can't ignore them. 
Of course, they can be dangerous. Of course, they can be very addictive. Of course, video games are exactly the same thing. You can have junk games, like junk food, junk wine, junk sugar. And you have like works of art. Some video games are absolute works of art. You take yeah, The Witcher 3, for example. This is a work of art. It's like an outstanding one. A lot of effort went through making it. The story is absolutely amazing. And it could teach you things. Uh, you take the case of Civilization, for example. Civilization 6, the latest one, can teach you a lot, actually. Quite, the problem also behind is the screen time. Yeah. Sc screen is bad for the brain, for the Yeah, especially health, if you no? don't use glasses, especially if you go be before going to bed because it interferes with your sleep hormone, melatonin, right? So we have, um, we have a small area in the brain called the, the, the epiphys, uh, pineal gland. The old name was pineal gland. It's here, right? If you cross my two fingers. And it's the size of a grain of rice and it produces two hormones, melatonin and uh, dimethyltryptamine. DMT is produced when we uh, dream and melatonin is produced when we have to go to bed. And um, this gland reacts to sunlight. So when we check a screen right before sleeping, everybody has different reactions. So some people don't care at all, they can just sleep normally. Others, when they have a lot of light entering their eyes right before sleep, they don't produce melatonin and they have insomnia. So that's quite possible, absolutely. And one of the solutions would be to take uh, blue glasses. So you've got some glasses that have some slight blue hose and, and you just wear them and it reduces this, uh, this part, yeah. Okay, but you say that the companies, like the gamers, can have like really good jobs in the end. Yeah. So it would uh, be useful to know for the parents who have teenagers. We, we had fighting. like ups and downs because uh, back in the days, in the 90s, during the first, you know, it, it was actually the second explosion of video games. You had the first one in the 70s and 80s, then you had the video game crack, you know, in the 80s. You had the E.T. video game that was a total failure and it completely crashed gaming industries, Atari died and all that. And then in the 90s, you had a new um, video game wave and they started to make video games that would stop. For example, uh, there was an Asterix game, I forgot which one, but in the 90s that, you know, if you played more than so many hours, it, it told you to take a break. Okay. Like, yeah, it really and it didn't work. So what we see is that we need to educate the kids and, and adults now because, I mean, adults play more video games than kids today, actually. But uh, artificial intelligence is still unable to beat the gamers uh, when it can beat the chess players. Yeah, right. Uh, it doesn't beat video game players. That's the thing. And uh, that's what's really interesting. I mean, and that's really what, you know, about being hard and, you know, we, we tend to confuse merit and pain. So from a mathematical perspective, Playing a video game like StarCraft II is way more complex than playing chess, way more. Like really, there's no match. In computer science, when we want to assess the complexity of a game, uh, we call it branching factor, meaning all the possible scenarios. What are all the possible games? Now, all the possible games of chess, now let's be even simpler, you know, the tic-tac-toe, right? All the possible games of tic-tac-toe are less than factorial nine. So nine times eight times, because you know, you've got nine You've got yeah, nine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So it's nine. So the first choice is out of nine, right? But actually the game is symmetric, so it's less than that. Then the second choice is out of eight, and the third choice is out of seven. Okay. So you've got, in fact, less than half of factorial nine of a tic-tac-toe game because it's symmetric. Okay, that's not a lot, right? So it's nine multiplied by eight, by seven, by six, by five, by four, by three, by two, divided by two. Now you take the game of chess, you've got one followed by 120 zeros. Right. So it's 10 to the 120 possible games of chess. It's called the, Ch the Shannon number. It was discovered by Claude Shannon, the father of the theory of information. And all the possible chess games are in the range of 1 and 120 zeros, which is more than the number of atoms in the universe 
Right? The number of atoms in the universe is in the range of uh, one followed by 88 zeros. This is one followed by 120 zeros. And still, machines beat humans. Actually, no human being can beat the best AI today at chess. Then you have the game of Go. Now, the game of Go is way more complex than, like, really way more complex. Uh, so the game of Go is the, the branching factor, the number of possible games, is uh, one followed by 800 zeros. So like one followed by 800 zeros. And then StarCraft II. Now in StarCraft II, which still um, machines can't beat the top, the top players, they can beat the average players, but they can't beat the top players. In StarCraft II, an average game is about 30 minutes. The top players, but the average top players, has 400 actions per minute. So, you know, keyboard, like, they can do 400 clicks per minute, which is a lot, right? It's the same level as a top pianist, right? When you've got, like, an amazing pianist uh, playing Chopin, 400 keys per minute is about the same, like, so... These guys are really good, uh, and when they play StarCraft II, you see them like that, and they, they have 400 action per minute. So 400 action per minute, 30 minutes, and um, on, a key, on a piano keyboard, you have 88 keys, right? So suppose it's the same, because on a computer, you've got more keys, but they use less keys, but they use the, the, the mouse as well. So let's suppose it's the same number as a piano, for simplification. Uh, that would give you a number of possible games of the range of 88 power 32 multiplied by 400. So it means it's 88 to the power of 30 times 400. Meaning the Go game is just as simple as tic-tac-toe uh, for StarCraft 2. And this is why you've got pro gamers. This is why Facebook and Google are hiring these guys. Because if you want to make the next generation AI, you need to beat these guys. And so far, we don't know how to do it. Do you think the next uh, generations are going to end up with a microchip in the brain? I don't predict the future, but it's completely possible, yeah. Um, that's the reason I write. That's the reason I, I, I really like controversies, and especially in those times. Because even Elon Musk, who anybody has to consider as someone extremely smart and uh, who's done a lot of good. I mean, you check what he's done. He's done a lot of good. He's really managed to make electric cars more and more affordable. And soon enough, there would be less than 15,000 euros per electric car. That's a big achievement. What he's done for freight, uh, aerospace freight was amazing. I mean, you know, sending one kilo into space used to be 100 times more expensive before Musk. So he's done a lot of good work. But he's con convinced that there is no way we can compete with the AIs and machines, and so we need a microchip in our brain. And I'm completely against that, like really completely, because first off, you could hack it. I mentioned the, the case in my book of Neil Harbison. He's um, the first man who's been officially recognized as a cyborg, and he's got an antenna in his head, like a, a really ugly antenna like that. It's like a work of art for him. I think he's a little, you know, but uh, okay, he's got an antenna sticking out of his brain. If you, if you pull it, you kill him. Yeah, yeah, you, because it's really... It's, it's plugged in his brain. And it's completely useless. I mean, the point of this antenna is just to make him, I think, uh, associate colors to sounds. You know, it's called synesthesia. Some people have it naturally. Most children have it, and then we lose it. But having a full antenna to do that, I think, is not that smart. But it's been hacked already. Yeah, because, I mean, if it's got silicon, it can be hacked. That's it, the scariest thing yeah, in the world, you, you've to got, get your, your brain hacked. Exactly, but yeah. you've got so many, you know, mangas and the Ghost in the Shell, for example, Ghost in the Shell, the Japanese manga was already mentioning that in the 90s, the possibility that you could be hacked. Ma the Matrix right, was huge influence by, uh, received a huge influence from Ghost in the Shell. The Matrix is all about hacking your brain and uh, plugging it. And um, 
In fact, you had a top hacker, his name was Barnaby Jack, Barnaby Jack, and uh, he was able to hack a pacemaker. So he could, he could kill you yeah, from afar by hacking a pacemaker, he could do that. Now we, in, in America alone, they implant 300,000 300, 300, pacemakers or heart rate regulators per year. You know, because with all the bad food and everything, they've got a lot of heart problems. So that's 300,000 every year heart regulators that are being implanted. And you could hack them. By the way, Barnaby Jack was found dead in his San Francisco hotel. Like a lot of people will tell you he was killed because he was about to reveal how he did that. He, he was, he, he, you know, okay, maybe he was, uh, I'm sorry, I mean, uh, may he rest in peace, but maybe he was a little arrogant there because he, he said he was about to reveal it in a keynote speech. So he wanted to make a keynote saying, look, this is how I hacked a pacemaker. Now, I'm not quite sure it was the best idea he could have, but uh, Barnaby Jack That's could a novel, hack. Uh, you could, telling a you novel. could make a novel. Actually, okay. they, they made an episode of Homeland out of it. Uh, so there's an episode of Homeland where they hack a pacemaker. And um, uh, Barnaby Jack could also hack an ATM, right? He called it the jackpot because his last name was Jack. So the jackpot was like you could hack an ATM and it would spit out all the, all the banknotes. Uh, so if you have microchips in your brain, of course they will be hackable, of course. It's not a question of, uh, uh, you know, how, but when. Is it why you're talking so much about neuro-wisdom? Yes. I'm talking about neuro-wisdom, so it's a, it's a very controversial term I invented because I wanted to follow the idea of Isaac uh, Asimov, who said that any civilization that produces too much technology and not enough wisdom is going to die. And uh, the case of the Third Reich is, is exactly that, right? The Third Reich had the best technology in the world. They had reaction engines. Um, they were disclosed to having the atomic bomb. They had rockets. They were the best rocket producers in the world. And they had no wisdom. Like, their wisdom was zero. But their technology was the best. So when you give a group of people with zero wisdom a lot of technology, this is going to end like super, super bad. It's time for the great harvest of the day in Kaplankaya. If something could be done easily and would make the world a better place, what would it be for Idris Aberkan? Well, um, I'm called Idris because of um, a Sufi master called Idris Shah. Uh, so he was a British uh, Indian Sufi master, uh, of, um, Afghan origin actually. And uh, Idris Shah was asked the same question in 1976, I think, in um, a radio broadcast called Psychology Today. Uh, it wasn't the magazine Psychology Today, but on this radio broadcast, they asked him this exact same question, what should be done to save humanity that would be simple. And he answered, and I don't think I have a better answer than that. He said, look, we've made amazing advances in psychology. We know so many things, you know, for example, human beings, uh, the Milgram experiment, like if you human beings, the way they react to authority. We know that you could make any person become a um, sadistic uh, bastard by just having somebody in a white coat telling him, in a lab coat telling him to do it. So we've made so many psychological experiments. And Idrisha said, if we want to change the world, just make sure that everybody knows about them. If, if human beings knew the Stanford Prison Experiment, the Ash Conformity Experiment, the Milgram Experiment, the Rosenhan Experiment, Rosenhan was a guy who he sent actors 
to psych psychiatric hospitals. It asked actors to play, to act as if they had schizophrenia. But then he instructed them to stop acting the moment they were admitted. And he wanted to check how long it would take the hospital to release them. And he realized some of them, it took them 18 months. And it was, of course, controversial because a lot of psychiatric hospitals were like, no, it would never happen at my place. So Rosenhan said, OK, let me check whether it could happen at your place. I'm going to send you 100 fake patients in the next six months, and you will tell me which one they are. And they did that for six months. And the hospital said, this is the list I have. And Rosenhan said, look, I didn't send you anybody. So yeah, all these experiments, uh, if we knew them, according to Idrisha, which is simple, it was quite simple, you know, popular science, documentaries, movies, whatever. According to Idrisha, if we just knew them, the world would be a much better place. So that's what I recommend. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Idris Aberkan's personal view on education and how video games would help students but also adults to absorb knowledge. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram, Harvest Series. Next episode will be with Lisa de Navarez. She's an incredible breathwork teacher and will be organizing a breath retreat very soon at Harvest. She will explain how she got all her fantastic knowledge about breathing. Until next time, 